This is Monday Morning QB, September 19th, 2022. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Today on the show, nurses confront a crisis in understaffing created by the industry they serve. We have a for-profit system. It's driven by money in the bottom line for the people who own and run the hospitals. And therefore, patients do not get what they need. Plus, another social media whistleblower. More racist statues tumble. And celebrating the life of Ramsey Lewis. All that and more. Stay with us. Fifteen thousand nurses with the Minnesota Nurses Association returned to work on Thursday after their historic three-day strike, believed to be the largest private sector nurses' strike in U.S. history. They now stand ready to resume contract negotiations, and a key issue will be what the union describes as dangerously low staffing levels, driving nurses away from a system that puts profits over the health and safety of patients by making it increasingly difficult for nurses to provide the quality care patients deserve. Sue Goodwin has more. The nurses' strike in Minnesota was in part about pay. The hospitals have offered a 10 to 12% wage increase over three years, while nurses are seeking more than 30%. But for many nurses who joined the picket line last week, an even greater issue is the crisis of understaffing, or what is called short-staffing. The nurses say they want to do their jobs, but management doesn't provide them with the proper staffing resources to care for patients. It's a concern shared by nurses across the country. Last week, nurses at University of Chicago Medical Center held a protest to draw attention to short staffing. This is pre-operative care nurse John Hieronymus. We want the University of Chicago Medical Center to provide a safe work environment so nurses do not leave at the end of their shift and find themselves crying in the car on the way home and deciding to quit their jobs. Short staffing among nurses has long been a problem that is only getting worse. The Minnesota Nurses Association is an affiliate of National Nurses United, and in April, NNU released a survey that found significant increases in nurses' concerns about staffing compared to just seven months ago. Nearly 70% of nurses said staffing has worsened recently, and over a quarter of nurses said they had been assigned to work with a skill set they did not possess. To find out more about the root causes of this kind of understaffing and its impact, we spoke with Jean Ross, RN and co-president of National Nurses United. Short staffing is a problem uh, throughout our country and indeed around the world. In other countries, you might find it because they simply don't have enough nurses. In our country, unfortunately, it's been engineered. Um, we have a for-profit system. It, it's driven by money in the bottom line for the people who own and run the hospitals. And therefore, patients do not get what they need. In other words, <clears throat> enough adequate uh, trained nurses. Nurses don't get what they need in enough registered nurses to help with the load. And you end up with the situation we find ourselves in now, which is where, unfortunately, a lot of nurses have had enough and they say they just can't take it anymore, and they're either not going to stay in nursing or would not consider it as a career, which is a shame because all 
engineered by employers who know better. Addressing this issue is a key concern of National Nurses United, and last December they issued a report titled Our Front Line, Ending the Shortage of Good Nursing Jobs and the Industry-Created Unsafe Staffing Crisis. As the report notes, studies have shown that adequate staffing levels through RN to patient ratios result in better patient outcomes. But as Jean Ross explains, management has a different priority. When it comes down to protecting your staff and the patients versus protecting your bottom line, the employer will always, always go for the bottom line first. Now, they used to be able years ago to find different ways of, of cutting uh, here and there. But now uh, the inevitable has, has occurred, and the only thing that's left is to cut patient care. That's the only way they can continue to make money, deny care. So they deny it in uh, you can't come in unless you have a certain type of insurance. Um, you can't take care of those patients because we don't have enough money uh, to give you staff, and they will they will lie to your face. They will tell the public, they will tell us that there just aren't enough nurses around, when in truth they have shoved them away and they don't want to hire because it costs them money to pay us. And it's not just patients who suffer. The failure by hospital employers to staff appropriately and provide the resources needed to provide safe therapeutic patient care has caused nurses to experience what is being described as moral distress. In other words, a debilitating combination of anxiety, fear, guilt, shame, anger, and betrayal that results when workers like nurses are thrust into life-or-death situations without the resources and support structures to carry out the mission they've committed to. Well, I think there's been no shortage of writing about what stress does to a person. So stress comes in many forms. We were all under mass induced stress with the pandemic, for example. Stress of uh, working in a field where you have to care for people who sometimes don't have good outcomes. That's very stressful, but you know about that and you're prepared for it. That is what you are educated for and that's what you train for. You know that you need a license in order to practice and to that end, you don't do things that put your license at risk. Forcing us to work in a situation where shift after shift, day after day, we know we don't have the proper number of staff, the proper type of staff, because the employer won't provide it, that puts you in extreme distress. And I'm not sure anybody who isn't in that line of work can quite understand it. And so we can better understand what it is like to work under these conditions, Jean Ross shares this story from her own experience. You know, the, the time that I started noticing how bad things really were was a day when um, we were short-staffed, as per usual, and I had a patient that really needed me. And at one point, I came into her room, and I looked at her, and I said, you know, I, I told you to call me right away if this occurred. And she looked up at me, and she said, you know, dear, you're right, I did, but you looked so busy. I just didn't want to bother you. Now, isn't that a sad state of affairs when the patient is trying to take care of me? But that's what it amounts to. You cannot possibly hide 
how we are being torn in all these different directions. And it makes patients afraid at a time when being calm and relaxed and, and helped through whatever it is they're in there for, they are looking at taking care of us. That's just, that's Alice in Wonderland. We shouldn't be in that situation. So what can change it? National Nurses United believes that the only way to ensure that all hospitals have safe staffing levels that are consistently adhered to is through mandated nurse-to-patient ratios. California, in 2004, became the first and only state to mandate specific nurse-to-patient ratios, requiring hospital wards to maintain a ratio of one nurse for every five patients, while intensive care units must maintain a one-to-two ratio. National Nurses United wants to see this approach implemented at the national level, which is why they are calling on lawmakers to pass the Nurse Staffing Standards for Hospital Patient Safety and Quality Care Act, which would establish national mandatory minimum RN to patient ratios that are not unlike standards set in other professions. So, for example, you know, if you have pets, most people know that vets are limited to a certain number of patients. A small animal vet can take so many, large animal vets can take so many. Daycare providers, there are rules, there are laws in place. You wouldn't expect a daycare provider to take 10 infants, you know, and they wouldn't be allowed to. And um, teachers should not have more than so many students of a certain age in a class. So I think the public assumes that it's, why wouldn't it be the same inside a hospital? Because here you're dealing with life and death. Well, it should be, but it isn't. And so it's, it's a matter of educating people to the fact that we know what we need. Uh, we have professional organizations that tell us at each of our nursing specialties how many patients we can safely care for, and that is written into the legislation. And uh, politicians need to take up that um, take up those bills and and uh, sign on, co-sponsor the ones that are on there, and say that they stand with nurses. You said it during the pandemic, you know, put up or shut up. That's what they should be doing right now. So what about the Minnesota nurses who have made better staff-patient ratios part of their demands? As they head back to the bargaining table following last week's strike, Jean Ross hopes they are in a better position to get what they so urgently need. Well, you know, the one thing employees do listen to is money, and they do always lose money when nurses choose to strike. So that applies some pressure, and we hope it makes them sit up and take notice. Um, it's going to take time. They're very, very stubborn. And they're not bound by the ethics or the care that the nurses feel, uh, sad to say. I, I really think they should be in a different line of business, but that's what we're forced to deal with. So we hope the, the pressure um, that was applied can make them sit up and take notice and and uh, really get down to business and bargain in good faith, which they have not been doing so far. That is Jean Ross, co-president of National Nurses United. To find out more about the work they do to protect nurses and patients and how you can support their efforts, she invites you to visit their website at nationalnursesunited.org. That's nationalnursesunited.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin.
Last Tuesday, former Twitter executive and now whistleblower Peter Mudge Zatko testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee to discuss serious flaws in privacy and information security at Twitter. Zatko told lawmakers that the company fell years behind on cybersecurity, misled the government and the public on its handling of security issues, and said he was eventually fired for his efforts to bring company failures to light. Whistleblowing isn't new. Indeed, many political leaders marked this year as the half-century anniversary of the whistleblower-driven Watergate scandal. But we are in a new era of speaking truth to power, in which the internet and active misinformation campaigns play central roles. To better understand how Zatko falls within the lineage of truth speakers, from Watergate's deep throat to Facebook's Francis Haugen, we turn to Tom Devine. Tom is legal director at the Government Accountability Project and is an adjunct professor at the D.C. School of Law. He says Peter Zatko's story isn't all that unusual, in which a well-meaning employee feels compelled to blow the whistle when they are prevented from doing the job they were hired for. Oh, yes. Most whistleblowers have, most employees, have a strong sense of professional responsibility. I mean, this is their identity. It's what they're good at. It's how they contribute to society. And they have some pride in their work, and they have some respect for a professional standards and the law, rule of law that governs their their work. Uh, and it's very frustrating uh, when they uh, are told not to play it straight on the job. Uh, and it's also very common. Um, most organizations want to maintain the appearance of um, operating responsibly and uh, obeying the rule of law and being good corporate citizens without all the muss and fuss and lost profits that go with um, maintaining um, those standards. And so uh, it's very common that quality control departments, um, uh, compliance inspectors, um, auditors, um, uh, they end up becoming whistleblowers, not because they wanted to point the finger, but because they were playing it straight, doing their jobs, um, when the company only wanted um, false advertising. Last time we spoke was in the fall, after Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen revealed numerous issues at that company you know, regarding misinformation, hate speech, um, harmful emotional effects for young people. Are there relevant parallels in your mind between Haugen and Zatko, either in the content of the revealed material or in the manner in, in which the whistleblowing happened? I think the most clear analogy is in the organization's response. Um, in each case, the organization uh, wanted to trash the messenger. Um, uh, we call it the smokescreen syndrome, uh, doing whatever they can to distract from the message um, uh, and maintaining a, a posture of complete denial. And this is just horribly, horribly self-destructive for corporations, and it's a threat to the to the social media industry. Uh, there was a study by Professor Kyle Welch of George Washington University, and uh, the results were very impressive. That companies which set up whistleblower channels, which listen to the messenger instead of trying to kill the messenger. Um, they have less liability with the federal government. Um, the penalties for whatever liability they do incur are much smaller. There's fewer lawsuits against them, and the resolutions of those lawsuits are much more modest. Um, it's bad business to kill the messenger, and 
um, or try to um, uh, destroy the credibility of the messenger and just hide behind denial. And that's the common theme with both of these two social media companies. I think they need to grow up. We've seen a number of security and safety flaws crop up in the social media world, I think especially around the last two presidential election cycles, but not limited to politics. Is there a need for additional strengthening of whistleblower protections around social media specifically, or would you just say a sort of broad strengthening of whistleblower protections would be sufficient here? Uh, well, either one, whichever we can get. Um, Representative Shikovsky has uh, an FTC whistleblower bill, which would cover the type of abuses by Twitter um, um, uh, and uh, Facebook. It's HR 6093, uh, and it'd be great for uh, your listeners to um, get in touch with their office and offer support and see what they can do to help. Um, we're also pushing uh, a bipartisan whistleblower uh, uh, legislation for all government contractors, uh, anyone who receives money, any company that receives money from the federal government, which would sweep in um, um, these particular actors. And uh, that would um, include refusal to violate the law. Um, it would... Um, uh, uh, basically be uh, the gold standard for free speech rights in the United States. And uh, Government Accountability Project, we're working very hard um, to get that accomplished before um, Congress adjourns this year. Zacco's whistleblowing obviously looks bad for Twitter, but I don't think it's just Twitter that is catching heat here. I- I'd imagine that the FTC and other federal agencies are worried about looking weak and ineffective in terms of their oversight of companies like Twitter, can we expect these agencies to face political pressure to tighten enforcement, or will their operations remain unchanged? Uh, what it takes is whistleblowers who are exposing um, all of the weaknesses and gaps in their enforcement um, in their enforcement efforts. Um, uh, the public doesn't like to be, um, you know, the the victim of mass dishonesty. Um, uh, and it's not healthy for the economy either. Um, when the truth comes out, um, whistleblowers make an impact. Um, it needs to come out repeatedly and effectively. Um, but, you know, I should be probably one of the most cynical people in Washington, D.C., working with thousands of whistleblowers about uh, cover-ups. But it, I think I'm one of the most idealistic um, folks in town because over and over again, uh, when the truth gets out and it's used strategically, um, those who are abusing their power have to respond. These abuses of power can only be sustained by secrecy. Uh, and uh, what it's going to take to get the government to enforce the law aggressively uh, is a public that's knowledgeable enough to demand it. And whistleblowers are the, the lifeblood uh, to transcend ignorance and replace it with uh, having a good take on what's really going on in our country. Taking a step back, I, I think oftentimes when we hear whistleblowers testify in front of Congress or, or tell their stories in the press, it creates a, an immediate wave of attention on the issue, but that wave often subsides. How, do, how does GAP and in general, how should um, people interested in this issue work to sustain attention on whistleblowers after the initial wave of media attention? Well, it's through persistence and solidarity. Um, you're absolutely right that if there's just um, a passing scandal on um, today's headlines or tomorrow's fish wrap, uh, uh, it'll it'll fade and be forgotten about. And 
um, most organizations who are abusing their power are counting on that. Um, so what we do is uh, try to turn that initial pioneer whistleblower into the beachhead for a, a whole community of whistleblowers. We open up investigations of the whistleblower's charges. And, you know, it may be kind of easy to discredit or um, say that someone, one person is untrustworthy or is a, a nut uh, uh, or a crook themselves or just trying to be a hot dog. Um, but it's difficult to say that 40 or 50 people, they're all lying. Everybody's lying, except us who can't really defend <laughs> the behavior that they're, that they're exposing. Um, so we dig in and um, um, try to expand uh, the circle of knowledge from the pioneer whistleblower. The second thing is that we don't just do legal cases at Government Accountability Project. We do cam- legal campaigns. That means playing information matchmaker between the isolated whistleblower and all the stakeholders in society who should be benefiting from their knowledge if they only knew what was being done to them. And so uh, you need to combine um, uh, expanding the scope of evidence so that uh, it can't be dismissed credibly, and then education so that everybody knows how they're being sold out uh, and can have the sufficient knowledge to start standing up for themselves. Um, when that happens, the whistleblowers make a difference. Lastly, I feel like I have to ask about Elon Musk. His attempted takeover bid of, of Twitter has dominated headlines in recent months. And I'm I'm curious whether you think Zatko's revelations might impact this this takeover bid. And secondarily, if Musk does end up buying the company, do you think he would be any better than current Twitter leadership in terms of handling security and spam issues that Zatko has brought up? Well, the current whistleblower has been a real opportunity for Mr. Musk. He's amended his complaint, and uh, it's going to uh, open a Pandora's box of um, potential information from discovery based on um, the full scope of uh, what the whistleblower is privy to. Uh, so it's been um, a very significant boost for him. The jury's out as to how much new evidence will come in, but it's a real opportunity. Um, as far as whether he would do better or not, um, based on his past history, um, he may be worse than the current management, um, both in terms of uh, integrity and uh, in terms of tolerance for freedom of speech or anyone who, who gets in his way. Um, and that's why it's very important that if Twitter does get solved and it stops being a publicly traded corporation, which is subject to all the whistleblower protection laws and becomes a privately traded corporation, um, we're going to need some free speech rights for those people because um, they drop dramatically um, once you get out of the share, once you get out of the sector of uh, investing shareholder and investment rights. Um, so that's that's a good reason why we need a representative Shikowsky's bill and why we need to be getting gold standard whistleblower rights for all uh, employees of institutions receiving federal funds. I know I've kind of jumped around with a lot of my questions, but I wanted to give you the chance to provide closing thoughts if you have any. The, dis- the disclosures by Twitter's whistleblower are basically symbols of um, uh, a very significant showdown this fall. Um, this autumn is going to be the season of truth for truth tellers. There's a dozen whistleblower protection bills in Congress right now. And the politicians have been very 
quick to praise whistleblowers, compliment them, tell them what great citizens they are. Um, but they've been a lot slower in terms of giving them rights to defend themselves uh, against what oftentimes ends up being like professional suicide. Uh, and they need rights. Um, um, there's legislation to overhaul the Whistleblower Protection Act for civil service workers, uh, for the government contractor workers, for the intelligence community whistleblowers, for the military service whistleblowers, for the NRC and DOE, the nuclear whistleblowers, um, um, for those fighting antitrust violations, and um, for those challenging abuses of power by big tech. Um, your listeners should get in touch with... Um, they're a member of Congress and both their senators and tell them at every chance they've got to, they've got to get in there and defend the people who are risking everything to defend the public. That's Tom Devine, legal director at the Government Accountability Project and adjunct professor at the DC School of Law. Learn more about Tom and the Government Accountability Project by visiting whistleblower.org. Hey, this is Latrice Vincent, co-host and producer for Voices with Vision, which airs every Tuesday at 9 a.m. The misleadership of the world keeps the people under their thumb by bombarding us with half-truths, misinformation, and straight-up lies, and by blocking media space for the rest of us. But their greatest weakness is the lies they tell, and the greatest strength of the people is the truth, which is on our side. It is often said that one truth can crush a thousand lies. There is no better reason than that for you to support WPFW, a people-centered, truth-telling media that keeps you engaged, informed, and interconnected. Support WPFW today by going to wpfwdc.org donate. That's wpfwdc.org forward slash donate. WPFW, building a better world one broadcast at a time. You're listening to Monday Morning QB. I'm Sue Goodwin. Our next piece takes on the continuing struggle to remove from our national landscape symbols that celebrate the Confederacy. Here's Asia Beckham. Since the death of George Floyd, many Confederate symbols and monuments are being taken down. 73 Confederate monuments were removed or renamed in 2021, according to a Southern Poverty Law Center report. That 2021 record said that over 700 Confederate monuments remain standing in the U.S. and its territories. In some states, no Confederate monument exists in public spaces. Maryland's last public Confederate monument, a 13-foot-tall copper sculpture featuring a boy holding a Confederate flag and names of the men from the Eastern Shore County, who joined the Confederacy and died during the Civil War, were removed in March 2022, reported U.S. News. Some who are advocating for the removal of statues include Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who called for 11 Confederate figures to be moved from the U.S. Capitol, which led to four portraits being removed. The NAACP has organized across the country 
by filing lawsuits and protesting for schools to be renamed and flags and statues to be removed. Some Confederate memorabilia supporters suggest that history must be preserved and not removed from where it was originally placed, and that soldiers who fought for the South and the Civil War were buried in unmarked graves and deserve to be memorialized. Currently, a Confederate statue stands on the lawn of Matthews County Courthouse in Virginia. The county is considering gifting the statue and surrounding land to a private organization, such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy or the Sons of Confederate Veterans, which will prevent citizens in the future from determining through local elections whether to relocate or remove the statue. Here, I spoke with the local NAACP chapter's president. My name is Edith Turner. I am the local branch president of the NAACP here in Matthews County, Virginia. What are the demographics of Matthews County? Matthews County is predominantly Caucasian. There is probably 90% Caucasian, between 80 and 90%. So with the statue, uh, my understanding is that there's a Confederate statue uh, standing in the front of Matthews County Courthouse, and that that statue might potentially be preserved, and the ownership of the statue and the land might be transferred to um, potentially a Confederate group. Has the community reached out with any thoughts about this? Yes, the community has reached out. There's been several groups that have expressed concern about that piece of land and or the statue being given to this private group because, you know, most people here would like for that statue, well, for that piece of land because it's on the historic green in the center of town and it's public property and they would like for it to be used for something that the whole community could benefit from. You authored a letter to the Board of Supervisors, um, and basically there was a point that you mentioned that it will send a message to people of color who live and work in the county uh, that they are unwelcome to Matthews County and that it's a sanctuary for white supremacists. Any response on the Board of Supervisors yet? I have not heard from any member of the Board of Supervisors. There's a public hearing later this week on Wednesday, uh, sort of what are you expecting, if anything, from the Board of Supervisors, uh, follow-up comments, or actions that might follow the public hearing uh, on this Wednesday? The public hearing is basically to get the community's feel and opinions on what should happen to that piece of property. Following the public hearing is the Board of Supervisors meeting. Our hope is that they will listen to the cooler heads of the community who have asked them, you know, not to give this piece of property to um, this private group. We don't know yet, of course, what their decision will be, uh, but that is that is our hope, that they will not give this piece of property to the Confederate group. You know, we've had people who've come to town for festivals and, and other events who have not felt comfortable with the number of Confederate flags that are better up. So, you know, we want we want everybody in the community to feel comfortable, to feel welcome, to feel like they have just as much at stake in this community that we live in as anybody else. We did have conversations with the Board of Supervisors. 
because the Board of Supervisors meetings were held and that statue sits right outside of the door. So people were feeling uncomfortable going into the Board of Supervisors meeting with um, people, you know, on that statue, around that statue with, with guns and other weapons. And for a time, they moved the Board of Supervisors meetings to the high school where there was, no, you know, you could bring in your weapons, but they've moved back now to the historic courthouse. Next, we spoke with the attorney who's working on behalf of the NAACP in Matthews County. My name is Caitlin Banner, and I'm Deputy Legal Director at the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. So we have not filed a lawsuit. Um, The Board of Supervisors is still debating and considering whether or not to um, give this land away. Um, They've got a public hearing uh, on the subject of giving land away uh, in the next week. Um, And what we did um, on behalf of the NAACP was to send a letter to the Board of Supervisors expressing um, our opposition to that move and explaining to them what we think some of the potential ways that that move would violate the law. The statute on the courthouse square and the giving away of that statute to pro-Confederacy groups would potentially violate the Fair Housing Act because it's the form of racial steering. By doing taking this action, the Board of Supervisors is sending a message to Black citizens and people of color in Matthews County that they do not belong, and we think that that's a real problem. Then I spoke with the chief commander of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. That's uh, Larry McClooney. I've been a member of the Sons of Confederate Veterans since 1995. I just recently stepped down as the commander-in-chief of the Sons of Confederate Veterans this past mid-July of this year. Uh, My ancestors, um, I have 20-plus Confederate soldiers who are my ancestors uh, from various states that fought during the war between 1861 and 1865. And uh, it's kind of a a thing that members in my organization, we all share. Uh, We have uh, a common interest, a common brotherhood, just like our uh, ancestors did back then. I'm sort of wondering... um... Can you share instances when the sons of Confederate veterans have been gifted a Confederate statue or surrounding land in the past? Sure. Um, the, the the statue that was uh, removed in Memphis, Tennessee, of Nathan Bedford Forrest was gifted to us by the city of Memphis. And basically, uh, that was after a long controversial struggle over uh, whether that statue would remain uh erected or taken down or moved to another location or whatever, um, uh, that was given to us for our safe uh, care. The descendants of Nathan Bedford Forrest uh, came before us and requested that uh, we would be the caretakers of that statue. It is currently um, sitting on the, the land of Elm Springs, our national headquarters in Columbia, Tennessee, and it is out in the open for public viewing, sitting out in front of our uh, an antebellum home there in Elm Springs. It is not in a statue. It is out for public viewing. But what some people have to understand is that that statue, and, and we don't refer to the statues just as statues. They are considered to be memorials. 
in this particular case, this particular statue was on the grave site of Nathan Bedford Forrest. And as a result, when the statue was taken down, uh, we also inherited uh, the uh, remains of General Forrest and his wife. Anyone that's going to discuss this issue, one thing you have to do is you have to leave out emotions and, and passion on it and look at the facts. And the facts are that less than 10% of the South at that time, the white, white population, actually owned slaves. Okay, That's a fact. That's not an emotional thing. Um, so with that in mind, I would challenge anybody to say that that's what the issue of the war was about. It was certainly an issue, but not the issue of the war at the time um, and why those people fought. Um, those people had a 19th century frame of mind. They were products of the time period, and we should not judge people with 21st century rose-colored glasses with our views and values today based on the views and values of that time period. So you're going to erase the fact this war ever was fought. You're going to erase the fact that these people ever existed. You know, um, let's go back to the point about statue taken down. In Washington, D.C., um, there was the woke movement that wanted to take down a statue of Abraham Lincoln just because they did not like the fact that in the statue depiction shows Lincoln holding up a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation. His hand is on top of a uh, black slave that was kneeling in front of him, and, and that was to symbolize he was freeing that slave. But yet the woke movement said they didn't like the statue because it has the black man kneeling down beside Abraham Lincoln in chains, and they said that's a depiction of racism. And yet it was black people over 100 years ago that raised money to have that statue erected. So we're going to tear that down as well. Can you see the irony, the hypocrisy there on that? So you're going to criticize these people, sacrifice these people, and put them on the shelf of racism because of one thing that happened in their life. Forget about the multiple great things they did for this country. Uh, so we're going to ostracize uh, George Washington. We're going to ostracize Thomas Jefferson, ostracize uh, the majority of our presidents before Abraham Lincoln. Where does it really end? A question for you here. Um, I wonder, did your family own slaves? My direct ancestor did not own slaves that fought in the war. And as far as I can tell, of the 20 people that I have researched, they did not. Although my direct ancestor was a descendant of a slave owner. So was it I'm like sorry? a great-great-grandfather? or He was uh, my four-time great-grandfather that fought in the war, my direct <laughs> ancestor. And uh, he did not own slaves. But his... His father did, and his grandfather did. Well, the, the fifth and the sixth great-grandfather did, yes. What's the source? You mentioned that 90% of the South did not own slaves. What source is that information from? Oh, I'd have to go back and look at that. Um, you'd have to look at uh, U.S. Census records at that time and so forth. 
but also keep in mind that the U.S. Census records of that time uh, also reported about uh, free blacks who owned slaves, but we don't know exactly if they were black or what, because a lot of the times if they did mention colored uh, of the person, they just said colored. Uh, and colored meant anybody who was not white. Uh, you forget about the Native Americans who owned black slaves at that time. You forget about the Latinos that were in America in the South and different areas of the country who owned slaves at the time as well. So, you know, uh, when I say 90%, you know, that's a pretty much a not an exact figure. It could be a little bit more, could be a little less, but it's based on the U.S. Census records at the time. Just a final question here. Uh, my last question for you, there was mention that um, there was an armed group. Do you think it's ever permissible to uh, carry weapons uh, to surround a Confederate statue uh, to send a message to the community? I, I do not agree, nor do I disagree, because uh, – the Sons of Confederate Veterans does not uphold any form of violence to carry out our our mission. But 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 I will say this in closing: a, any organization or group, and that's the great thing about being American, has a right to protest in a peaceful manner. And we do not participate in such violent measures and so forth like that. Uh, we are a peaceful organization. We're a historical organization. We're very family-oriented. Earlier this month, Chilean voters rejected a new progressive constitution that would have legalized abortions, enshrined rights for indigenous people and the environment, and overturned a set of laws from the era of dictator Augusto Pinochet. While the rejection of the new constitution is a setback for the Chilean left, hope is not lost. A majority of the country still rejects the Pinochet era, and young progressive President Gabriel Boric promised another attempt at drafting a fresh constitution. The morning after the no vote, longtime Chilean-American writer and activist Ariel Dorfman joined Democracy Now! to explain his thoughts on what the rejected constitution represents. This was uh, an extraordinary Magna Carta, both because of its origins uh, in, in a popular protest because it was drafted by people who looked like Chile itself, not sort of elite experts who uh, behind closed walls were constantly deciding what others would, would be ruled by. And it was, as you mentioned, you know, incredibly ecological, the most advanced in the world. It extended democracy and participatory uh, forms in, in all levels. It legalized, not only legalized abortion, but, you know, when I read the Constitution, I've read it several times, the one that has just been rejected, what, what calls attention to myself is the extraordinary tenderness with which it's, it, it's 
it's been composed and written. It speaks about the glaciers. It speaks about the air. It speaks about the children over and over again, the children. It speaks about the caretakers at home. It speaks about the animals. It speaks about the dogs. It speaks about everything vulnerable that needs to be taken care of. And of course, it includes there for the first time those who have been invisible and exfoliated constantly by uh, by the, the 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 major powers in Chile, the indigenous populations. It is also an extraordinarily feminist constitution, and I just could go on and on and on. I had 388 articles, perhaps too many, but uh, it its its rejection is uh, is a very significant defeat. However, I am not entirely pessimistic about what the future will bring. Uh, some of the reasons why this happened, because we should not forget that 62% of the people in the largest election, 13 million voters, much more than ever before in, in the nation's history, did reject this proposal. And they did not, however, because 80% of the people decided previously that there has to be a new constitution. So we will have a new constitution. The question is, if we are now under the veto power of the right wing people in Congress, who will try to restrict as many of these rights as possible. Dorfman, who served as cultural advisor to Chilean President Salvador Allende before Pinochet's bloody coup in 1973, read his poem in honor of the hundreds of dissidents made to disappear during Pinochet's rule. Yes, uh, this is about the disappeared, because it turns out that we are fighting also for the disappeared or desaparecidos. We're fighting for all the dead who died so that we could have a different Chile. It's called Last Will and Testament. When they tell you I'm not a prisoner, don't believe them. They'll have to admit it someday. When they tell you they released me, don't believe them. They'll have to admit it's a lie someday. When they tell you I'm in France, don't believe them. Don't believe them when they show you my false ID, don't believe them. Don't believe them when they show you the photo of my body, don't believe them. Don't believe them when they tell you the moon is the moon. If they tell you the moon is the moon, if they tell you this is my voice on tape, that this is my signature on a confession, if they say a tree is a tree, don't believe them. Don't believe anything they tell you, anything they swear to, anything they show you, don't believe them. And finally, when that day comes, when they ask you to identify the body and you see me, and a voice says, we killed him, the poor bastard died, he's dead, when they tell you that I am completely, absolutely, definitely dead, don't believe them. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. No les creas, no les creas, no les creas. Don't believe them when they say there will be a new constitution. Don't believe them when they say that the people of Chile will stop struggling for justice and social equality. Thank you so much. That was Ariel Dorfman, Chilean-American author, playwright, and poet, and professor at Duke University, speaking with Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez on Democracy Now! September 6th. Hi, this is Tom Cole, host of G-Strings, here on WPFW every Sunday morning, interrupting your favorite program to encourage you to support the station that brings it to you. WPFW puts hundreds of community voices on the air every week, presenting news, information, and music. All kinds of music you won't hear anyplace else on the FM dial in the nation's capital. From classic mambo to Caribbean soca to old school R&B to jazz. 
has. If you appreciate that kind of diverse programming, please help keep it on the air. Take just a couple of moments to go to wpfwdc.org forward slash donate. That's wpfwdc.org forward slash donate. As a second-generation Washingtonian, I'm proud to be part of WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. We end our show today with a remembrance of jazz icon Ramsey Lewis, who passed away last Monday at the age of 87. Lewis, a native of Chicago who grew up in the Cabrini-Green public housing project, began his path to becoming a jazz icon at a young age, starting piano lessons at age four. Over the course of his career, Lewis recorded more than 80 albums, often with the Ramsey Lewis Trio, winning three Grammys and scoring five gold records. In 2007, he was named a jazz master, the highest honor for a jazz musician in the country by the National Endowment for the Arts. Here now is Ramsey Lewis playing the title song from his 1966 album, Wade in the Water.
And that's our show for today. Support Monday Morning QB by visiting WPFWDC.org and becoming a monthly sustainer. Thanks to our engineer, Michael Nacella. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Continue to rest peacefully, Askia. Again, please visit WPFWDC.org slash donate and become a sustainer of this great radio station. Thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington. Mm-hmm.